For almost as long as she can remember, Joyce Fawn has been translating for her mother. My mom just gets very nervous because she thinks that she's taking too long to think of what to say in English, so she just hands off the phone to me, basically. When Joyce was in elementary school here in Las Vegas, she would translate at parent-teacher conferences. And so I'm just kind of telling her, like, oh, what's the teacher say about my performance? And I was very young back then. That was elementary school. Sometimes I would would take off some parts because I'm like, I don't think she needs to know that. Yeah. (laughs) You're listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast about AAPI issues in Southern Nevada. You'll be hearing that acronym a lot on our show. It stands for Asian American Pacific Islander. I'm your host, Lorraine Blanco-Moss, and in this episode, we're talking about language. Why is it such an important issue for AAPI communities, and in what ways can languages be our superpower? I grew up surrounded by different languages. At family gatherings, beyond the sounds of clinking glasses and the clattering of forks and knives, I heard a lot of English. A little Cantonese, doce popo, some Portuguese, obrigada mana, and Spanish, gracias tia, and a few, well, not so polite words in Tagalog. Even though I didn't always understand everything I heard, those sounds are home to me. What might feel like a cacophony of foreign gibberish to some still brings me comfort. But my parents never tried to teach me any of those languages for fear I wouldn't fit in, that somehow my English wouldn't be perfect if I was bilingual or multilingual. More recently, Joyce's role has expanded. Her mom has cancer, so she's translating at doctor's offices. Since we go from office to office, there's definitely been times that it's been easier. Doctor, like, will stop and pause after every single sentence just for me to, like, explain to my mom. But then there's a lot of times also in, like, the bigger facilities where doctor's really busy. So they just kind of, like, come in the room really quick and, like, you know, say a bunch of things and then just walk out. And you don't really have time to explain. I'm just trying to memorize exactly what they're saying. With that, what we kind of did was we kind of asked doctor if it's okay to record them. And I, my mom just records them and then I explain to her what's exactly going on. These scenes might be familiar to some of you listening. According to 2013 census data, more than 25 million households in America self-reported as limited English proficient. It's especially pronounced in Asian American and Pacific Islander families. More than a third of AAPI households identify as limited English proficient. That's the highest rate of any ethnic group. Joy says... That sometimes, in public, she and her mom are hyper-aware of the language they're using. And so we usually just kind of like whisper if we're speaking like Cantonese in public. But there's just been times where people just kind of look at you and assume that, you know, you don't understand English for some reason. And they will just kind of treat you differently or they will try to dumb down the words for you. Joyce remembers one day at a grocery store when even whispering wasn't quiet enough. Yeah, could you Ma, oh, Moa. 
We were just in line, and the gentleman in front of us, I'm not really sure what was going on. Maybe he just had a bad day, but he's basically telling us, like, oh, you can speak English here. And I'm telling him, like, yeah, I know I can speak English here, but I'm not talking to you, you know? I'm just waiting in line talking to my mom, and we're being quiet. But um, he just, some reason, like, just random people standing in line, they will feel the need to just turn around and tell you that kind of stuff. Our community won't report any issues or problems because of language. That's Vita Lin president and founder of the Asian Community Development Council, a nonprofit that connects AAPI communities with resources. They won't report or go to different services that are available to help the community because of language, right? So language is really a big issue because we don't speak one language. You know, our culture and languages, we're talking about at least 40 plus. And Vita points out that 40 languages doesn't even begin to capture the linguistic diversity of AAPI. Where if someone speaks to me in the Shanghainese language and I speak Mandarin or Cantonese, I can't understand them. It's like a whole complete different language. So when it comes to even the different country, their dialects are broken down to even more. So we're talking about dialect itself. We're talking about 3,000 more Asian dialects that's out there. A huge part of the ACDC's work in Las Vegas involves translation. At the start of the pandemic, they help translate vital information about COVID-19 and essential workers. They offer citizenship classes, and they help people register to vote. And for years, they say, oh, no, we don't know. We don't want to get political. We don't know the language. We don't understand the issues. And when we register our community, we are giving our community back power. They walk people through paperwork that's even tricky for fluent English speakers, like health insurance. So that was something we did before then, plus we did to help people navigate the insurance. And I can tell you, even for us to understand how the insurance works, is very difficult. Can you imagine we spoke another language, right? So we're there with our bilingual staff, helping them navigate the whole health insurance. Vita's just getting started. Next on her list, she wants to open a language bank a multilingual team of translators that anyone can call or text to get help. She wants members of her community to feel heard, feel like they belong, because language can so often be used to make us feel like we don't. Being able to speak more than one language is like being able to play an instrument. That's Assemblywoman Venetia Considine, representing District 18 in the Southeast Valley. She's also an attorney at the Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada. It's an amazing thing that should be absolutely celebrated. And it would be wonderful if, as we progress throughout this, you know, next decade, that everyone can be a, a whole participant in our state and in our country, no matter what language they speak. In the most recent legislative session, she proposed and passed Assembly Bill 359. It has some pretty big implications for families like Joyce's. Well, it's something that's sort of been on the radar for me for a while. Prior to my current position, I was a consumer rights attorney with the Legal Aid Center. And one of the things that I saw very often was you have uh, people who speak another language, whether it is Tagalog, Korean, Spanish, German, whatever it is. But if they came to us with legal issues, say that they had purchased 
tires or, you know, something that required them to sign a contract. If they were coming to us, it was because something went wrong. So often you would have somebody come in and say, well, you know, I had this whole conversation. I spoke to the person and we spoke in my native language, my language other than English. And this is what we agreed to. And then we would have to explain, well, your contract is in English. This is what you sign. And this is what the contract says. A court will go by the four corners of the contract and not what you had verbally agreed to. That's where AB 359 comes in. It requires businesses that advertise in a target language to provide business contracts in that language, like certain mortgage, auto loan, and credit card contracts. If you think about it, a contract is a promise. And to Venetia, this bill isn't just about preventing deceptive business practices. It's also about building trust. They've done some of it. They've reached out. They have conversations in that language other than English. Let's go all the way. Let's create that community with any non-English speaking community. But then you create that trust. You build that trust in that community. Then you also expand your business. So I'm trying to kind of help both sides. The person, the customer who is going in, buying something that requires the contract, and the business who can feel like, great, now I can go you know, fully in and create this great base, this great foundation with a community that I can build a lot of trust with. So what about people who might say, well, this person should speak English? That's not the government's problem. Well, first, we don't have a language requirement in this country. I have a history degree in uh, Native American history, so I know that there were multiple languages spoken here, hundreds of different languages spoken here before anyone who spoke English came. Specifically to Nevada, Nevada itself was part of a country that did not speak English as its primary language. And I believe that the diversity of people extends to what we wear and what we speak, you know, our belief systems. And you can't sort of just cherry pick what you want and what you don't. We are a melting pot and we invite anyone, hopefully, you know, to have the opportunity to build a life here. You bring your whole self. You don't like leave your language at the border. AB 359 went into effect on October 1st, 2021. Next up, we'll be talking with UNLV professor Mark Pudungpat about new ways to look at language and diversity in AAPI communities after this break. This is Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast from Nevada Public Radio on Asian American Pacific Islander issues in Southern Nevada. At the beginning of this episode, we told you that more than a third of AAPI households identified as limited English proficient. But when you break down that data further within AAPI groups, you get a very different picture. For example, just 22% of Japanese Americans identify as limited English proficient versus 64% of Burmese Americans. To help us break this all down, I sat down with UNLV professor Mark Pudungpat, director of Asian American Studies at UNLV. You're trying to tell a professor to be Right? (laughs) (laughs) He's also on the Exit Spring Mountain team as our academic research consultant. As soon as you ask the question, you're like, let's wrap it up. Yeah, right. That used to happen (laughs) to me in TV all the time. You know what? That might not be a bad way to think about this, right? Like, as soon as a question's delivered, it's like... 
Just wrap it up. Just remember, it's just... 15 seconds from now. Yes, <laughs> wrap it up. What does it mean to attack the monolith? Like, what monolith are we talking about here? Yeah, I think API as a category, representing all Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, I think you can see it as one monolithic homogenous group of people with either shared histories, shared experiences. And so attacking the monolith is really diving into and getting at the nuance of what AAPI, the category, stands for. The ethnic differences, class differences, differences in education background. And so all of those differences, right, I think expose or highlight that AAPI is not just this one homogenous group, but encompasses and represents a very, very diverse, complex group of people. Well, that leads to the next question, which is we want to break down that term AAPI for our listeners. What does it mean? What does it include? Yes. So we'll start with Asian American, right? So the term Asian American gets its start because of the radical activism in the 1960s among Asian American student activists at Berkeley. Yuji Ichioka is credited for coining the term Asian American, and it was coined precisely as a political identity, right? That he wasn't talking about people from the same geographical area from Asia. He was talking about people who were in the United States, Asian peoples who were seen as Oriental or exotic, that shared that experience of being seen as foreign, and so the term Asian American was supposed to represent a political category that even though we're different, sometimes very, very different, we all experience the same kind of racism of being seen as Orientals and Asians. So despite those differences, we're seen in this way. What we're hearing right now is footage from 1968 of a massive student strike at San Francisco State University. Yuji Ichioka and his wife, Emma G, led the Asian American Political Alliance. They joined the strike alongside Black and Latinx student groups. Their efforts led to the creation of ethnic studies departments in universities across the country, including Asian American studies. And then the PI gets added in the 1990s when the U.S. Census includes it in the census. And so at that point, they separate Asian Pacific Islander, that category, Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander, they separate it into Asian American or Pacific Islander. And so now you have these different categories that then get coupled together in all kinds of ways, right? It's API, sometimes it's AANHPI, right? Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander. Um, there's all kinds of configurations. The Important thing is that, and this is not, you know, something we can answer right now, but that more people are asking whether that even makes sense to combine AAPI. And what they mean by that is, to what extent does the Asian American movement, to what extent is it similar to Pacific Islander movements? For example, you know, Asian Americans uh, have been fighting for inclusion and have been, you know, struggling to be seen, to be represented in American society and culture, to have full rights, full citizenship, 
to not be seen as foreign. Many Pacific Islanders don't actually want to be part of the U.S. at all. To them, the issue isn't inclusion, it's sovereignty. Give us our land back. Let us determine our own future. And so those goals politically don't even align, right? And so I think that term has come under contestation, I think is the word. Because it's not necessarily a bad thing. Terms change. And I think opening up the conversation about who is included, who is not included is always good and it's never ending. But that's, I think, the, the challenge of coming up with an acronym that tries to encompass an entire group of people. And so I really hope listeners would, you know, not necessarily take away any answers, but really open up how they think about this category of AAPI, who it includes, and why such a category, whether we call it AAPI or AANHPI, why does such a category need to exist? Because I believe it does. Uh, I believe there is a unifying experience or, or a similar experience, but I hope listeners will uh, take that away from the episode. Mark's point is that categories are imperfect. Language barriers, access, and abilities are diverse across this broad category we call AAPI. For me, I identify proudly as mixed and Asian American, and it doesn't matter what languages I can or can't speak fluently. And for those who are multilingual, honestly, I see their abilities as kind of a superpower. I really do. Yeah, definitely when you're at work and uh, let's say, at least for me, the biggest moment where I find that I am really glad that I speak a different language is when I find someone that I can help with, like a patient. Joyce told us about a time when an older Chinese woman came into the pharmacy where she works. She was worried about refilling her heart medication. She just didn't know what to do. Like She didn't speak English well. Luckily, I just happened to figure out that she does speak Cantonese, and um, I was able to help her out. And I just, I just think it was really nice to see how happy she was just because I was able to help her translate that kind of stuff. When you have that extra language, that helps you communicate. That helps you build business. That helps you build power. That is actually an advantage and not a disadvantage. I understand the fear my parents had about teaching me their languages. But for this generation, I want to try something different. I want my child and their children to someday revel in their multicultural, multilingual, uniquely American existence. Mark has also thought about what he wants for his kids. Well, that leads me to the next generation, because I understand you have two little ones at home. Yes. Are you trying to teach them any of the language that you do know? Are you, you know, trying to keep their cultural heritage in that way or learn more for them? Yeah. Really fascinating question because I love my kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird to even say, right? It's like, why should I say that? I even need to say that. My partner and I are more open to having Tere and Yuri learn as many languages as possible. So right now, like, we're really excited that Tere is learning Spanish, and we want him to learn Mandarin, even though Gloria, my partner, speaks Cantonese and her family speaks Cantonese. And I think part of that is we understand the value of Tere speaking Thai and Cantonese as a way to stay connected to our roots, but also that there are other ways to stay connected to his roots. So I can also talk to him about the Thai community and teach him about the Thai community, all these different ways that people can be Thai outside of language. 
but also, again, cultural change, right? Like the fact that he's growing up here, being able to learn Spanish and other languages besides English, I think is another way for him to create his own identity as being Asian American. And so I think that's also really valuable too. And that's the end of our very first episode. You've been listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a new podcast from Nevada Public Radio about AAPI issues in Southern Nevada. We record the show on the lands of the Southern Paiute people. Make sure to like and subscribe wherever you find podcasts and tell a friend about us. This podcast was made possible with support from Arcata Associates. Thanks this episode to our guests, Joyce Fawn, Vita Lynn, and Venetia Considine. Our team includes executive producer Sonia Cho Swanson, <laughs> academic research consultant Mark Badungpat, and research assistant Nessa Concepcion. Joe Shaneman oversees podcasts as news director at Nevada Public Radio. And our sound editing, mixing, and mastering is by Regina Rovazova of Open Conversation. Special thanks this episode to Gloria Wong-Padungpat and Kevin Kral. Music in this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Lorraine Blanco-Moss. Obrigada!